Hi everybody, I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Asima Diane Deemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively minded life. And how about this? It's very good to be a grown-up. It's great to be a grown-up, right? Do you sometimes look at children like, gosh, I wish I were back there. Wouldn't I love to feel like a child again? But, you know, it's actually really nice to be a grown-up, too. I mean, we're the ones with all the power, right? Do you think kids look up at us adults and say, I don't stand a chance? They're the ones with all the power, and we do make all the decisions for young people. So, you know, it's good to be a grown-up. And what does it mean to be a grown-up? There are definitely a scale, like some people are more grown-up than other people. And it's kind of nice. You want to leave this life feeling like you've lived a grown-up, fully grown life. And so this week I was watching a movie, Nasima. I think many people might have seen this movie. Um, it's about Fred Rogers. Remember Mr. Rogers? Absolutely. There's a great scene on there where he's on the, on the uh, subway. And people start singing the song, <laughs> Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood Song. Yeah. You know, but he said something towards the end of the movie um, that really struck me, and I really want to talk about it today. And um, it was that, you know, death is something that we don't talk about. And he says something really profound. He says, you know... Whatever is human is mentionable. Whatever is human is mentionable, even in front of a dying person, you know. And whatever is mentionable is manageable. You know, so I thought about this and this theme that we've been talking about these last two shows um, on loneliness, you know. There are topics that people don't talk about, death being one of them, and loneliness being another one. And yet everybody has had the experience of loneliness, and all of us are going to experience death. And it's just something that people don't talk about. Especially, you know... On the radio, you know, the radio wants to be this upbeat place where only good vibes happen, great music and et cetera, and great kind of lively conversation and not, you know, downer topics. Loneliness doesn't have to be a downer topic. Well, it seems like radio is a way that a lot of people, you know, manage loneliness. You know, you're driving in your car alone, you're, you know, moving down. I think a lot of people feel radio personalities are good friends of theirs on some level. Yes. Like... I know Armand had that relationship with a lot of his sure. his people who listened to him. Yes. And, you yes. know, it's nice to hear someone else's voice, hear people talking about things that might be touching you. Yes, so, yeah, radio is a big – and it reaches so many more people on so, easier yes. for a lot of people to get radio. Right. And podcasts, like our podcast, which is like radio. And um, But here's a question. Is a radio a better way to handle loneliness or television? a better way to handle loneliness? Or is there a, a better here? I think a lot of people use TV as a way to avoid their loneliness. 
Or manage. Or manage, manage their, loneliness. their loneliness. So whatever is mentionable is manageable. And yet loneliness, being lonely, doesn't seem to be something that we can mention. Except now, right? In 1971, 11% of Americans in the last six months agreed to a sense of loneliness. In, ni- in 2011, it was up to 40%. And in 2021, there's no shame in sharing feeling lonely during this pandemic and having felt lonely during this pandemic. In fact, I don't know somebody, anybody who hasn't felt lonely during this pandemic at some point. And so maybe, you know, this is the positive mind. We can look at things that have been tragic and terrible and find a silver lining, let's say, or something positive about it. Maybe this pandemic... One thing that's occurred to people is what kind of films, what kind of movies are going to be produced in a year from now or two years from now? There's certainly going to be a whole segment of films produced uh, about people in isolation or uh, a rampant um, disease or something happening across the globe or whatever you're going to find. Uh, so there, there will be movies about this period of time. But what about... Um, conversation, that this might be a time for people to finally be able to talk about feeling lonely and being lonely. I think a lot of people also reassess their lives. Like, if something like this is potentially going to happen again, do I want to live? A lot of people moved closer to their family, moved back home. Did they? Yeah. I think quite a few people were like, whoa, you know, let me get out of here, get out of, you know, it's like, I, I can't live away yes. from New York City. A lot of people left and went back to places where they felt like they were closer to friends and family. Yes. And um, it's, uh, it's, it was a big shift, a big shift for a lot of people to sort of look at, wow, the potential of being isolated again is there. Yes. And, you know, maybe I want to look at my living situation. What makes sense to me? You know, I think that might be true. Imagine if we had another one, a pandemic, in five years from now. It's a way for people to finally recognize what is important to me. What is important to me? This this pandemic has produced a lot of isolation. And many people have managed it and survived it. But imagine a second dose of isolation that people might resort back to an old way of living where they did live close to family, where there were extended families, that there were close bonds with families, communities, and friends that maybe we don't have right now and haven't had before. Again, in 2011, 40% of Americans claimed to have been uh, lonely in the last six months. Come on, what what do you think it is now? Um, 65? yeah. It's up there. 70%. It's up there. Um, at least in the last six months. And yet it is a dirty word. It is something that you can't say to people, I feel lonely. What happens to you when somebody says that to you? Yeah, it's it, it, There's a, such a stigma on it. I, again, it's like this, this interesting dichotomy of American culture is like you have to be an individual, but you're not allowed to be lonely. <laughs> you know? It's right. like be an individual, strive, right. succeed, live on your own. You know, I, as I was reading through some of the materials, I'm like, wow, there's such a stigma to moving back home with your parents or having your parents live with you or uh, any of that stuff. And it's like, wow, I mean... The yes, elder population yes. is so lonely. 
on so many levels. They don't want to move into assisted living, which is a wonderful thing for a lot of older folks to not, you know, to engage with others their age and stuff like that. But so many are like, I'm still independent. I have to stay on my own. And it's a heavy price to pay. You know, if you're if you're mobile and stuff and you're able to engage, great. But like staying at home for that sake of that American independence and strength, pride. Yeah. Wow. I, I don't think that happens so much in other countries. There's much more, you know, generational support, intergenerational support. It Probably. seems like yeah. they're much more open I to that. Thrive, so maybe one of the benefits or things that could come out of the pandemic is a thriving elderly community or a, a vision, a creating a vision for how to age well in America, how to not be lonely for the last 10 years, five years of your life. This is a question. This is something that you know, we need to brainstorm and think about. And I think the pandemic could be a, a reason and a motivator for do- us doing that. So good things can come out of this pandemic, we're saying. And talking about loneliness could be one of them. So how about it? Um, how do you talk about loneliness? Well, we have a, a scale in reading this book by John Cacioppa called Loneliness. Let me see. Loneliness, human nature, and the need for social connection. It was a bestseller in 2008. Human nature and the need for social connection. He has, very early in the book, um, a questionnaire from UCLA uh, from 1996 on loneliness. How often do you feel that you lack companionship? How often do you feel alone? How often do you feel that your interests and ideas are not shared by those around you? How often do you feel close to people? How often do you feel left out? How often do you feel that your relationships with others are not meaningful? And other questions. It's a 20-questionnaire um test and it's on a scale of one to four from always to never always sometimes rarely or never one to four and we're going to post this on our website on monday so you can go through and answer these questions for yourself just to get a sense of where you're at yes and the rating scale is one to four um and so obviously the lower your number the the less lonely you might feel but you know one of the things the book uh, points out is that Loneliness is really subjective, and a good way to look at it is, do I feel hungry? Do I feel thirsty? Do I feel pain? Do I feel lonely? If you don't feel lonely, then you're not lonely. (laughs) So if you don't feel thirsty, then you're not thirsty. You might, you know, have not had a drink in three days of water, But if you don't feel thirsty, then you don't feel thirsty. You don't need water. You do need it biologically, but you you don't feel you need it. Well, this was an interesting point, and I've heard him sort of speak on YouTube about this, that, that these signals of hunger and thirst and pain are signals to you that something is wrong and something needs to be done. And he's sort of sending loneliness in there too. Like it's a it's a core human need to be in contact with people. And if you're feeling lonely, it's a signal. I need to reach out and contact That's right. people. That's right. 
And, of course, it's part of our human nature. He says it's called human nature and the need for social connection. When we don't have social connection, we're supposed to feel lonely. You know, I mean, animals and human species have been communing together and working together uh, from the beginning of time. And now we're more and more separated and more individualized and less connected. And yet when we feel so, when we feel lonely, that's a positive signal that, wait a second, I'm not really connected to people. And it's not your fault. Let's take this off the table. This is why we want to do this show, because so many people feel shame around the word lonely and saying I'm lonely. And, you know, it might be actually a good thing. I I can imagine Carl Jung. Carl Jung used to say when somebody came in with bad news to them, he'd say, let's celebrate. Let's open a bottle of wine, you know, because now you can start your life. You know, or when they came in with good news, he would say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, (laughs) you know, because good news can be a trap, you know. So when you say I'm lonely, it's actually this is oh great. Come on in. Let's talk or, you know, let's go do something together. This is a positive thing. It's a sign that we're not living the way that we were born to live and being born for social connection is to be part of being a human being. And so, again, this gets back to Fred Rogers. Whatever is mentionable is manageable. And so when somebody says, I am lonely, that's fine. Let's sit down and talk about it and and manage it. Let's figure it out. And at the end of the show, we're going to talk about ways to manage loneliness. But it's an invitation instead of, oh, boy, I got to fix this person's loneliness. Did you ever feel that way? If somebody, don't tell me about your loneliness. I don't want to hear that. I can't handle that. As if it's your responsibility to fix that. Is that the first thing you feel when somebody wants to say those to you? That's worth looking at. You don't have to fix it. So here's a question. Which of your parents was the lonelier parent? Right? Did you witness? Imagine if your parents came to you and said, I feel lonely. <laughs> Uh-oh. Now we have a problem. That, I would say, is is not appropriate. Okay? Uh, you want to go to a therapist to talk about that. But imagine. But, you know, we, you know, look. A child looks up at his parents and sees sometimes people that are getting along together and love each other and, pa- and people that are estranged and distant from each other. And once he sees the estrangement and distance, he sees anger or hostility or whatever can happen within a a family and a marriage. And then he sees um, daddy's over there, mommy's over there. And then which of them is... Then the idea of loneliness comes. Which of them is... They're both lonely, maybe. Which of them is lonelier? And what's the depth of their loneliness? Imagine every child seeing and looking up and seeing their parents' loneliness. And, you know, many families just hide from that and just build their whole way, their family dynamic around avoiding, acknowledging dad's loneliness or mom's loneliness. And and the whole coping and the, the way of existing and the, the adult grows up in a way, a defensive way of avoiding noticing loneliness. But let's give it, let's call it a given. 
every child sees their parent as lonely at some point. At some point. Because we're all human and we all feel it at some point. Yeah, I think if I reflect a little on, you know, which of my parents is most lonely, I would say my mom was probably the most lonely. Mm. And In what way? In the relationship in general. I think just in a way of a, a certain quality of contact that I could feel she wanted from my dad that my dad wasn't giving her. I see. And... um but she but she also, you know, made a point of getting involved in the community and getting out there and being in contact and being contactful. She was a contactful kind of person. Right. But my dad really wasn't. So I think there's a I can feel into that quality of like loneliness or disappointment or yes. sadness that she had. Yes. And she found a remedy, again, mm-hmm. which we will talk about in the second half of the show, ways to, to manage it. And so your parents were post war generation parents. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, yeah. your dad was in the service. Yeah. Um, yeah. And your mom was in the service, wasn't she? Yeah, they were. In, in some way. Yeah. So she found a coping mechanism. And so she, you might have noticed the loneliness in the marriage. But how about her as an individual? Aside from her relationship with your father, but her as an individual. Did you see her loneliness, you know, in the kitchen or in the morning or, you know, in in the car or in the grocery store or you know at night that's something you're interested in because you see your parents as a unit together and you also see them as individuals and you can see them lonely as a pair with the other person but can you also see them as lonely in themselves well when you ask that question yeah i think i would see my dad as being more lonely that way like, I don't think my mom was lonely within herself that Yeah, much. your mom found avenues and outlets in order to diminish and minimize her loneliness. Yeah. Your your dad, and maybe many men from the post-war generation... Um, yeah, more internalized. ...learned to bear loneliness more than following generations, perhaps. Yeah. And the, and the roles were very clearly defined for post-war generation parents right and i think he would retreat into his intellect or his you know engineering you know let's yes his let's expertise. engage with a with a me- mechanical thing that right. i can work with and, yes. his mastery you know. his mastery of something right right so that's a question it's not in the questionnaire in the loneliness book but i think it's an important question which of your parents did you see as more lonely? And it's actually a great conversation between siblings. You want to, you know, you want to have, you know, a heated debate, uh, a really substantial debate. Talk about your parents' loneliness. And, and then there's this phenomena in in families where the children can sometimes carry the parents' loneliness. I don't want my mom to be lonely, so I will, I will carry her loneliness. I will take over a good portion of her loneliness and I'll put it on my back and I'll carry it in life. And same thing with a dad. Yeah. And I, and I'll say that just in talking about it, I feel a little vulnerable. I feel like I expose something about my parents. So this gets back to that, you know, it's a stigma. Like how, how dare I say my parents had loneliness? You know, there's, I can feel that. I can feel that edge Mm -hmm. there. Mm. And, and again, it's, it's, I think important to mention it. And and it's it's just another facet, another 
another part of them. And I think it's an important part for us to see in each other, our loneliness. I think it's a very caring and compassionate thing. Very caring. I think we have it all wrong. You know, I think it's such a rich topic and thing for people to explore. And yet you feel like you're betraying your family by saying, yeah, my dad was a lonely guy. My mom was a lonely woman, you know, even though it might help you, it might help them. Um, It might help you as a family to talk about that. And also then how, how did I adopt certain of the traits of these parents that I lived with and witnessed my whole life that caused my own sense of loneliness? See, I just see how rich this could be, folks. And we're talking to the audience here saying this is not something, this is something worth not running away from. This is worth looking at. Because we copy our parents and we end up in the same professions that they had, the same role in the community that they had, the same amount of children that they had. We, we, we mimic unconsciously often the lives that our parents had. And we take on both the positive traits and the negative traits. And we're here to tell you on the positive mind, you do not have to carry your parents' loneliness. And can you see your siblings the way that they carry their parents, the parents' loneliness? You know, what, what, a, what an opportunity for charity and, and, and compassion and love and reigniting love between siblings by seeing the way that they cure the wound of mom's loneliness or dad's loneliness. So I think the pandemic is an opportunity, is going to be an opportunity. And if I had my chance, I'm not uh, Ingmar Bergman, but I think Ingmar Bergman could you know, make, a, make a great movie out of loneliness in America uh, through the pandemic or any country, really, um, by showing you know, how vital loneliness can be and how it can be transformative and life-changing by acknowledging it. So let's talk about some of the characteristics of loneliness because you know believe it or not it's rather genetic you know i like many many things in psychology right you know people that are happy that are just naturally happy that's often genetic you know some people are blessed with a positive temperament yeah does that does that apply to this kind of epigenetic like is it is it in the code or is it part of the ancestral I mean, I guess it is part of the ancestral sort of hand-me-downs, but our epigenetics kind of determine what's going to be expressed in the genetic code. Yes. And and I think, yeah, people who are descendant from, you know, people who were often ostracized or maligned, you know, I wonder if that, you know, increases or decreases their loneliness. I think it absolutely does. And I think you're asking a really good question. Um, In this book, uh, he does talk about genetics and that, you know, you might come from a high tolerant place of loneliness or a low tolerant place of loneliness. If you're a low tolerant of loneliness, that means you are intolerant and you want to get out of it and you want to do certain things to get out of it. Other people are highly tolerant of loneliness. So it's a fascinating part of this book, loneliness, human nature, and the need for social connection. 
that if you come from a, a background, let's say a genetic background, an ethnic background, like where your grandparents and their parents and their parents and their parents used to living on their own and not really needing social connection or feel a social connection through religion, let's say, or something else, but can be alone in a room for 40 years. <laughs> I mean, there are certain ethnic groups and backgrounds in countries where people, you know, are trained to loneliness and to being alone. There's this TV show, what is it called? It's called uh, Life Below Zero, right? People that go out into the wilderness and live in this cold, cold environment for eight months of the year and live alone and love it and thrive on it. And I would like ask them, tell me about your parents <laughs> or your, tell me about your great, great parents. Because, you know, if you're typically from a city and you go move into the Alaskan bush and live in below zero temperatures, you're going to have a very hard time. And you're going to have a hard time probably very physically, like just surviving. And that show is a lot about just surviving. But also um, in terms of feeling isolated and lonely. I mean, we don't recommend that. That's not a way to manage loneliness, which bring, brings me to this piece in the book on Chapter 5. He starts Chapter 5 like this. There's a joke about a Finnish couple in which, in which the wife complains to her husband that he never expresses his affection. He responds with consternation. I told you I loved you when I married you. Why must I tell you again? <laughs> <laughs> and yet Finland is one of the happiest countries in the world. Yes, yes it is. Four years every, in a row. Every, every year it, it shows up as one of the happiest, if not the happiest country in the world. So there's a little irony in that. But maybe, you know, the, they have a high tolerance in Finland, for being alone and being lonely. Or not being lonely, but a high tolerance. Um, and so the husband says, I told you that I love you. That, in my mind, that means forever. I haven't changed that. That hasn't changed in all of our marriage. So you want me to say it again? You know, Maybe you're American, not Finnish. <laughs> <laughs> Where we seem to need people to tell us more often that we need to hear the word, I love you. And maybe that's a need as well. A person who needs to hear, I love you, I love you, could be somebody who's very alone and lonely, right? So we started this whole series uh, on loneliness um, with me talking about, I was talking to a friend of mine, and they, they were mentioning a third person, and... I had a physical reaction to when he was telling me about this third person and their position on a certain issue, political issue. And I said, oh, they must be, oh, they must be so lonely. That, that, I didn't even think that thought. It just came out of my mouth. Oh, they must be so lonely. That um, when you need to be told, I love you, maybe right there, that shows that this person is lonely. And that and, you and, are lonely. You're feeling lonely, that you're feeling unmoored in some way. Yeah. If you're the person who's, who needs to hear it all the time, mm -hmm. right? We call that neediness <laughs> in a relationship. Though we definitely encourage saying those words as often as possible. I love you to mm -hmm. people. That's one of the remedies 
to just say it all the time. And couples often start their day and end their conversations with I love you. And we think that's a great practice as well. So this is a question, high tolerance or low tolerance. And it might you might have a high tolerance based on your heritage. And the question before we go to our break is, if it's a high tolerance, is it something you want to pass on to your children or to the next generation? Has your high tolerance for loneliness and being alone been okay for you or by you? Is it something that you wouldn't recommend to your children or your next generation of children or generations following yours? In other words, have you been suffering in silence? with some version and some form of loneliness and isolation and being alone because your parents did and their parents did and their parents did and their parents did. And this is like this book, I think, and again, it's called Loneliness, Human Nature and the Need for Social Connection, can be a turning point. It can be, yes, I have a high tolerance, but do I really need to? Do I really want to? Do I really harbor like a sense of isolation and loneliness that I really don't need to continue with going forward? So I can imagine this might come up if you're someone whose family is like, say, from Alaska, from a remote area of Alaska, right. and you decide to move to Vancouver for whatever like reason. City. And you might feel like your your high tolerance for being isolated, you know, being alone or lonely might not make it so easy for you to get out and meet people. You know, here's a whole city. Like sometimes you can feel very alone in a city when you don't really have the skills and the mechanisms to go out and join in. Right. And and just uh, before our break, I'll just say, we're not saying to impulsively and without planning, think about ending this tradition, let's say, or heritage of isolation and a high tolerance for loneliness by doing something dramatic like moving to a city where you can actually feel even more lonely, right? So we're not advocating that. So I think that might be an example of actually being more lonely. Um, well, it could make you feel more lonely, but it might be a life change that you really felt you needed to do. It could be that as well. Anyway, let's end there. Before our break, I'm Kevin O'Donnell, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diane Deemer. Trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And we'll be right back. A candy-colored clown they call a Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is all right I close my eyes Then I drift away
Morrison. My the echo, just the echo, can really summarize what loneliness could feel like. Right? He's alone in a studio singing that song. You think? There's a quality to his voice that sounds mm. like a wail of someone lonely. Yes. You know, somebody alone. And it is that kind of wail. And I think people resonate with that. Like, it's a deep hurt in there. Yeah. Well, how's this for a question? Have you had periods in your life when you were lonely? I mean, who hasn't? Can you think of moments and periods in your life when you were lonely? I think, again, I think it's a rich topic to bring to your partner. Your partner needs to know you in every which way. They need to know you when you were the most happy, and they need to know you when you were the most down in your life. And loneliness can be one of the most down experiences. And does your partner know that about you? Do you know that about you? Can you look back on your life and think, I was lonely then. I could see it. I think, and and it's in a lot of different studies and statistics, a lot of college students feel lonely in their first, I just remember being left that first night, that first day, yes, that first week of college when, you know, you're like, I don't know anybody, I don't know where to go, I don't know where the lunchroom is, you know. <clears throat> and I it's a real it, challenge to like reach out and, and ask questions and get to know people. It's a... It's intense. Yes. I think college should begin in in the spring, right? Because college begins in the fall. Mm-hmm. And then you go into this fall where the light is less and less every day. And, it, you know, for many, many people makes them feel lonelier. It's a lonelier time of year that it should be in the spring or even, you know, early summer that college should begin. It's definitely access to being outside, are people in the northern climates more lonely than people in southern climates? That's a question because access to being outside, being out in the world, can diminish loneliness. A lot of people, when they're lonely, they'll go off for a walk, which we recommend here at The Positive Mind for sure. But that's a question. In this list of the 10 happiest countries, most of them are in the northern climate, Right. Iceland, Sweden, Norway, Luxembourg, Austria, Denmark, Switzerland, Finland. Not a not a South American country amongst them. And it's interesting. That is interesting because I have a feeling that, you know, South American countries are more they are more cohabitating, you know, with yes. families, you know, multigenerational, very, very connected very. kind of culture. Right. And But it might say that loneliness is not necessarily absence of people, Nassima, or being with people. Um, you can be with people and be very lonely. You can be in a marriage and be very lonely. You can be the loneliest you've ever been when you've been in a marriage that's not working. And so it might not be just about whether you have an extended family or there are a lot of people around. It might be other variables. We want to talk about what loneliness does to you. Um, So first is, have you had periods of loneliness in your life? What were you feeling physically? 
I mean, I, I, that very thing you said about college, what about empty nesters? Like there, think of all the scenarios where somebody would be lonely moving to another city by yourself, um, getting divorced or, you know, end of a marriage, um, your kids going off to college. What about the parents where the kids are going off to college? How about that last child of yours going off to college or that last child of yours getting married? Um, now the house is just fully empty. You've done your job. Retirement. Changing jobs. Um, we talked in the last show about being that kid in high school where you were looking for the cafeteria table to go to and the feeling like there was no place for me to go to. These are lonely feelings. Um, the death of somebody that you love. Incredible loneliness. So what, is, what does loneliness feel like physically? Um, I it's, think it's important to na name these things because they're a great spurn to like, I don't want to experience those feelings again. So what, what can I do to avoid them? And I think it's important for you to understand what the feeling of loneliness is, like what it feels like in your body, because as John Cacioppo said, it's one of those signals to reach out for connection. So just like, you know, you need to know when you feel hungry and when you feel thirsty. Yes. He calls it social pain in the book, that when you're feeling not connected, you have, you know, the similar physical pain when you're feeling uh, social pain. When you're not feeling connected, it is a social pain. I'm supposed to feel connected, but I don't because I'm human. I'm supposed to feel connected, but I don't. So. And there are physical effects of loneliness. And we we're, we have a kind of a short list, but I'm sure it's a much longer list. But starting with elevated cortisol levels. So that means that you're in fight or flight. Yes. When it, you're feeling alone or lonely. Yeah. And measured in the mornings. In the book, he talks about fMRI studies um, and also saliva samples and blood taking in the morning of, of a, a, a thousand people and registering their cortisol levels. Now, cortisol is the stress hormone. So if you have elevated cortisol levels, it's an indication you might have a severe amount of loneliness in your life. Right. And you might not know it, by the way. We want to also say there's a thing in psychology called alexithymia that you might feel lonely, but you don't have the words to say it. You might not even know how to put the words, like alexit, lexicon, is words and having words for feelings. You might not be able to say those feelings, but if you check your cortisol levels, that's a good indication. You might be lonely yeah and then there's things we can do about that right and you know waking up with elevated cortisol levels can feel like a certain heaviness a certain uh, agitation or irritation upon waking um that that's what that's going to feel like high level of irritability right. is a is a good indicator of loneliness so when somebody's angry at you like this person that i was talking about was telling me about somebody else and i said oh they must be so lonely if somebody's irritable, check for loneliness. It also accelerates aging. 
which again makes sense because if you have high cortisol levels, if you're in that sort of fight or flight, your body is going to just wear down. It's in a state of chronic stress. So it accelerates aging on many levels. Yes, and because in the book he talks about um, the psychological features of loneliness and being alone and isolated and that those feelings create certain other feelings like hostility. Um, somebody who's hostile is probably prototypically lonely and that this hostility takes a, a toll on the heart. So cardiovascular um, function is compromised when you are chronically lonely and high blood pressure. He, right. ta he talks about high blood pressure. If you have high blood pressure, it's, it's, you know, you might be an indicator of loneliness and a, a breeding ground to talk about these things, either with your partner or somebody else. Mm -hmm. You know, I think doctors really should be trained in this, that when they have patients who have some of these elevated symptoms, physical symptoms, that they are trained to ask about loneliness and isolation. How, you know, do you know any doctors that ask about that? I do have to say doctors are definitely taking more intakes on depression, when people come in, what their emotional state and their mood state is. And that's something we didn't see 10 years ago. And so that also might be a benefit from the pandemic, that good intakes, uh, medical intakes, uh, might improve because of the pandemic. Right. And so when a doctor sees elevated, you know, two years ago, your blood pressure was here. Now it is here. Talk to me about your isolation. Talk to me about your loneliness. Let's check for that. Or you're irritable. Tell me about that. Of course, most doctors don't have time to stop and talk about that. Well, stress, high levels of stress, hormones like cortisol will also decrease your immune system's capacity. That's right. So more susceptible to autoimmune diseases, more susceptible to colds and flus and viruses and right. things like this. You're just run down. It's really amazing how connection and being with someone or even a pet can increase your ability to fight off these things, to be a, a healthier human being. Yes. It's, we're so, it's so tied in. And again, it just strikes me how our American culture kind of goes right against this capacity of our system. You know, that whole independence culture. Right. Really, really puts us at a disadvantage in our in our health and our well-being on so many levels. Mm. It's okay yes. if the kids don't move out. <laughs> you know? Like find find a way. Find a way to let that connection be okay. He does talk about in the book that um, those AIDS patients in the 80s that were diagnosed with AIDS, the ones that got a pet were 50% reported 50% on a scale happier and less lonely than those who did not have a pet. And, of course, we've seen in this pandemic a, a huge increase in cities in the adoption of pets, which is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Um, so pets, a contact with another living being, can ameliorate the feelings of loneliness in isolation. Absolutely. But also obesity. How can somebody who is obese not be lonely? Right? I mean, it's just last week we said alcoholism and other mental health issues can just clearly point to a, a sense of isolation and loneliness. 
when uh, somebody is obese, they're clearly lonely. Yeah, it can be a result of it. Because again, think, you know, these cortisol levels, you wake up in the morning with these elevated cortisol levels, your capacity for um, uh, not being impulsive yes. is decreased. So maybe you wake up and you eat a lot. You know, it's like this, it's the need to fill this void of loneliness. You know, it's like you're you're not obeying your your hunger thing. Maybe hunger and loneliness have gotten coupled. So it's like, I'll just, you know, they call it comfort food for a reason. Right. And comfort food is high in sugar and high in fats. Those two, those two items. Yeah. You know, so if you're, (laughs) I don't want, if you're thinking of fast food when you're driving your car (laughs) or wherever (laughs) you are, you might check for, am I lonely? Am I isolated? Have I been isolated? Because there might be days when you would say, there's no way that I would go buy fast food or any kind of fatty food or sugar drinks or things like that. No way. You can have a firm conviction again. And then there you are in the middle of the week and like you get this pang of desire for a soft drink and fatty food. There might, it might be the byproduct of feeling isolated these last few days not connected these last few days. And we want to say this is a good thing. The problem with addiction and obesity and other mental health issues is you do not see it. You do not see that I'm lonely, so I'm eating, I'm catching. You do not see that I'm lonely, and so I'm drinking to excess, and I'm alienating people, and I'm you know, not recovering as well, and I'm waking up a certain way, etc. To identify not the symptom or behavior as the problem, but to identify the feeling, which is lonely, and right. to share that. Because so often we try to, you know, change the behavior or change the symptom when the underlying thing is loneliness and the need is contact. And sometimes that can seem so hard to ameliorate. But it just, I, I think we just don't know how to be with people who are lonely and to, to be with our own loneliness on some level. And we as therapists know that you don't change unless you have a feeling first. So that's why so much of therapy is about getting in contact with the feeling and the and the authentic feeling, not a secondary feeling or a third feeling, tertiary feeling, the primary feeling. And so if a person comes in with obesity into the office, if you're not talking about loneliness and isolation in some way, you're never going to get to the feeling that this person is having, and they're never going to change. So we have to talk about the feeling. And a good therapist is a therapist that can guide a person to talk about these feelings. So another thing that does show up is chronic pain. Yeah, You talk about that because you're an expert in chronic pain. Talk about how this is an isolating experience. It's deeply isolating. It's, um, and I, 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 you know, chicken or the egg. I don't know if the chronic pain comes first or the loneliness, but I think they're very deeply tied. And loneliness, it, the loneliness of someone who's in chronic pain is like, I don't, you can't see often people's pain. You can't see the chronic pain, the, the issue that maybe doesn't have, you know, you have a, cast on your leg for a certain amount of time and people can see that you've been injured and that sort of connects you a little bit but say that leg continues to hurt and the injury's been healed 
quote unquote, Visibly. but it's still hurting or something in you is still hurting and it's chronically hurting and nobody can relate to that. And that is isolating and very lonely to feel like I have nothing organically wrong yet. I am experiencing pain, physical pain, and it's very mysterious and it can be hard to, you feel isolated within your own body because of chronic pain. Sometimes wow, it's like, I don't have any escape. You know, it's like, or I don't, or I have to hold myself up so tightly in myself and then my body is kind of making my life an isolated, lonely life. Do people close to somebody struggling with chronic pain feel um, impatient? Absolutely. They're like, get over it. Keep going. Move through it. Don't, you know. Yes. It's, It's really, really. And so you retreat into this world. Right, because nobody wants to hear it. You've been you've been in pain for six weeks or six months or six years, and, and there's nothing that can be done about it. And so, I don't want to hear about it. Right? You, there are people, close yeah. ones that, and so you take it in privately and secret secretly, and keep it as a secret. And yet, there's a dialogue that happens when somebody I know. Whenever I've had chronic pain, some kind of dialogue emerges like i'm in constant contact with myself talking to myself about this pain is it less now is it more now what do i need to do now how to manage this pain it becomes like this private dialogue and how to manage the pain in a way that i don't become isolated you know it's so there's a lot of work around boundaries that i do with people with chronic pain so that they can because I think the engagement in social life is an important way to relieve the chronic pain on some level, like to get in there and, and have somewhat of a social life, but then to not overdo it because chronic pain sufferers often will be like, I have a good day. I'm going to do everything I missed. So I'm, and then they end up with a crash the next day, like how to sort of manage in the chronic pain world, they call it spoons. Like how many spoons do I have for the day? Which is like, what amount of energy do I have? And how am I going to manage that in such a way that I can get some things done, but not totally crash my system? It's such a delicate ba- balance. It's so fascinating. And there's uh, some quality of distraction to trying to d- distract yourself through socialization, through connection with people. Yeah. From which can diminish, not maybe eradicate, but diminish the sense of chronic pain. Yeah. Well, when you're talking a lot of times with chronic pain, it has something to do with um, inflammation in the system on some level. Mm-hmm. Maybe the nervous system itself is inflamed. I see. And guess what helps decrease inflammation in the nervous system? The vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is divided into two segments that, you know, one is your social engagement nervous system. So if you can get that vagus nerve kind of toned up a little bit, and you can, we did a show on the vagus nerve, um, that if you can get that toned a little more, you can decrease inflammation in your system and actually find some relief from that chronic pain. So I know it seems like a stretch, but that social engagement actually does help decrease the pain. But it seems counterproductive. You know, to someone who's living in chronic pain, it's like to go out hurts more. But to find ways, little ways, little steps to start engaging can can make a huge difference. And to share that you're in pain, like people won't share that. And that's very lonely because, as you said, people are like, they feel helpless with it. You know, who hears that? It's the same thing with the the lonely. Like, if we can share it, if we can mention it, 
it's more manageable. Yeah. And there becomes a dullness with pain. Like you become dull and you become dulled because that's your whole world. And so you're not taking in the rest of the world. You're only taking in this pain and that it can dull you and dull your social abilities actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a, it's a mandatory really to make connections, social connections when you are in chronic pain to fit that in as a treatment. Right. And it's one way that I think social media has helped or, you know, even email groups or something. People are finding others who suffer with specific kinds of chronic pain. And I think they've been very helpful for people to find resources. I think I've said it once before, but one of the benefits, I think, from this pandemic has been Zoom meetings. That people that otherwise would not be participating socially with others are doing it from the safety of their home or their office. Um Either with, you know, full, you can mute your video in Zoom, so you don't even have to be seen by other people. Um, But even that, I mean, whatever it is, this has made people joining groups and being part of groups and sharing in groups easier than actually going physically to groups have been. So I think that that's going to prove to be one of the big benefits um, of this pandemic. And the diminishing of the sense of loneliness. There are so many social psychology studies potential from this pandemic asking how many Zoom meetings did you participate during during the pandemic? Evaluating for happiness or loneliness based on the, the attendance of meetings. And I can imagine it really has helped a lot of social phobia, you know, being able to attend something from the comfort of your home and be connected to a group and listen into a conversation and be real time there with other people. And this is classic phobia um, treatment, right? Where you gradually, gradually, gradually expose the person to the threatening event, the threatening situation. And so from the comfort of your home, this is a, a place to challenge that. Um, we don't have more time. I wanted to go into um, the remedies and the same. We're going to have to do at least one more show on this epidemic of loneliness. The other pandemic is loneliness, which is we believe is really significant um, going on. And I'll just tease it out. The solution is called E's, E-A-S-E, and we'll we'll explain what each of those letters mean next time. I did want to just close this portion of talking about it by the advances that fMRIs have had in um, neuroscience and psychology, that the place in the brain where physical pain registers is the same place in the brain where loneliness registers, the anterior cingulate, um, uh, dorsal anterior cingulate. It's up in the upper left part of the brain. And so fMRIs have really opened the door to advances in psychology. And that, you know, um, loneliness can feel as bad as physical pain. We want to honor that and talk about that. And I was really interested to do this research and just Google loneliness and chronic pain. Over 90,000 scholarly articles have been written about the correlation between loneliness and chronic pain. And again, chicken or egg. They're kind of, you know, not sure which one comes first, but they can definitely cycle into each other. Yes. And I'd like to look up back pain 
and and loneliness because <laughs> oh, yeah. I've experienced that tremendously. But so much more to explore. We're going to have to leave it there today. Uh, you've been listening to The Positive Mind. I'm Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diendemer, trauma specialist and licensed massage therapist. And we would like to thank the independent community radio stations bringing you The Positive Mind on a weekly basis. KACR, KAOS, KCSB, KEPJ, KFOI, KWSI, KXCR, KYGT, WBDY, WBTV, WRWK, Global Community Radio, and The Detour. And we would also like to thank our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady. You can find our podcast on most platforms under The Positive Mind. You can contact us at tffpp.org with questions, comments, or suggestions for the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which we send out weekly. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.